This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. How does the idea of paying for a way to deal with water runoff grab you? Well, the city's rolling out a series of community meetings next week to begin the difficult conversation of planning for the future when it comes to protecting our oceans and managing our stormwater runoff. We've all seen the damage due to flash floods in recent years as capacity of our drains has come to the forefront as an issue for our community. City Facilities Director Ross Asamora sat down with us yesterday afternoon to talk about this proposed idea to create a utility to help improve our stormwater system and plan for climate change. Well, the stormwater utility is something that the state legislature authorized us to do back in 2015. Seeing that it was very important for the counties to be able to plan for uh, what happens in the future in the sense that there are many different types of pressures that are that are coming our way, uh, some of which are regulatory. We live in a very special place where people come from all over the world to enjoy the environment here. A lot of it has to do with water sports and enjoying recreational activities in the water. And water quality is very, very vital to our state for us to continue to enjoy that kind of uh, notoriety around the world. So for us, water quality became a very important issue to make sure that we protect and provide for the future of the island of Oahu, the city and county of Honolulu, and also make sure that we comply with uh, all of the federal regulations that we anticipate to protect water and to ensure that we have clean water in the environment for us to recreate in and for us to enjoy water sports and actually harvest some food from as well. So it's all about clean water and I know the city uh, has pass some laws, you know, to to make sure that uh, any runoff, let's say, from construction, new construction uh, is handled properly. Uh, We also saw last year with those rain bombs, you know, the unusual flooding that we saw and the need for a discussion about capacity building in some of our our storm drains like Isa Honolulu. That's correct. So a lot of the capacity issues are the result of us developing land a long time ago, putting in the infrastructure, but never coming back to revisit any of that, never coming back to look at what the current state of development is and whether or not those systems are still able to convey all of the stormwater. And so those are some of the things that can be done in the future. But really what's important is for us to have a stable um, revenue base that we can look at to allow us to plan in advance. So in other words, Um, Other utilities, like the water utility that's here managed by the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, from time to time we have water main breaks that actually create some some challenges for people when they're going to school or to work. And for us, it's not so much breaks, but it's, it's a matter of us making sure that those storm drain systems operate efficiently, operate effectively, and are also going to be resilient in the future because we're also concerned about sea level rise. And we already have places like Mapunapuna where we know that seawater actually comes into the storm drain system and floods the streets in the reverse direction that we want the water to go. So there are a lot of things that we have to address, but again, primarily the thing that we're really focusing in on right now for us, uh, the quality of the water so that we don't pollute any of the streams, rivers, or the valuable ocean resources that we have. Yeah, I think in Mapunapuna, I snapped a shot during one of those king tides of fish on the sidewalk. You know, right. which was astounding. Yes. And you could probably go fishing in the storm drain and probably cast a crab net before you go to work and come home and uh, harvest all of that. Yeah, too. one thing I learned is don't drive your car through <laughs> that area right. because it rusts the undercarriage. Yes, it's salt water and it does take its toll on vehicles. So I know that there are a lot of people that drive through there that have suffered that effect as well. So uh, tell us about this proposed utility. Uh, you, you folks are launching a series of meetings and and uh, what are you trying to get across to people? Right, so we have a schedule of 18 meetings in different places around the island, hopefully in areas that are convenient for folks to go to after work. Uh, We hope that people will come to the meetings and share their candid remarks. Uh, I understand that there are many pressures financially that families on Oahu are facing, and so it's not something that's easy for anybody to to really be able to to think um, that they can adapt to, but what we're asking every, everybody to do is to come in, share their comments, and help give us some guidance as to how best they think we need to do this because we have to find uh, a reasonable way for us to not only make sure that we establish a, a, a solid, reliable stream of revenue for our storm drain system, but also make it so that 
the people that live here can can live with that and and actually pay fees if fees are going to be assessed if people want to look at credits so that they have better control over what they're going to be paying uh, then that's important for us to understand too because we want to give people the flexibility to actually Im implement some measures on their property that would make a difference in water quality and be able to benefit from that by by paying less or having some incentive to put those improvements into their private property. Is, is the idea that that you're trying to avoid uh, people concreting like their entire lot, that you want to have some green space and the water, the aquifers get recharged? Right. So, so when we talk about stormwater, stormwater is a very important part of our environment in the sense that it's part of the water cycle. Stormwater comes from rain. The rain comes from the evaporation that naturally takes place. And so it's a cycle of water that we're um, looking at making some improvements in, in the sense that right now, the way people develop, if you concrete your yard, yes, you reduce the amount of work you have to put into it. But at the same time, your property will shed more water off into the street. And when we talk about flooding and we talk about development, the big change in the environment is the ground no longer absorbs water, right? We push everything off to the ocean, into the rivers, but really what we want is we want the land to absorb that water to replenish the aquifer that we are drawing from every time we take a glass of water or we brush our teeth or we take a shower uh, and sadly whenever we flush the toilet. And so we want to provide some measures that will allow the land to be able to accept the water back again in, in highly developed areas. But we also want to provide the means by which people can reduce their use of potable water, reduce their use of that valuable aquifer by setting up rain barrels or actually setting up rain gardens on their property where through the, the process of directing flows off of your roof or your gutter system, you irrigate your garden or you collect it so that you can use it later. And one of the things that's important to, to remember is in a time where we have some emergencies, maybe caused by weather or other, other um, events, a rain barrel can also provide you water that you can flush your toilet or you can use for other non-potable uses. So it provides some measure of resilience in that way. So uh, I guess then by creating a system under which you can provide incentives for property owners uh, to have some green space or take out some of the concrete that they might have put in, like we saw with the monster home issue. Right, right. And, and so when we talk about equity and how all of this would work, uh, the amount of impervious um, area or the areas that don't absorb water but shed water are really what we're keying in on when we talk about how much should each property owner pay? How much should everybody's share be? And so one of the things that's important to understand too is we're not only saying everybody that uh, that lives and works in Mo'ili'ili or Makali or La'ie has to pay, but we're also saying that there are, there are property owners today that don't pay taxes. Government properties don't pay taxes, property taxes. Uh, there may be some other organizations and some other property owners that are in some class that uh, don't require them to pay. So we're actually looking at an even assessment across the board at all properties. And it's all going to be based on how much impervious area there is on that property, how much area that you have that's actually shedding water and not collecting it. So let's say one of the areas, uh, maybe a commercial property, let's say Alamwana Shopping Center, and that, that's a lot of concrete there. That is, and, and so that's a very good example. Uh, but it's not one that's going to be free of any credits or any means of lowering their fee because we do want people to take advantage of whatever opportunities there are out there to try to conserve the use of potable water. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're collecting comments from the public. We also have a stakeholder advisory group that's comprised of not only members of the public, but we have some people that are environmentalists. We have people that are neighborhood board people. We have uh, other professionals involved as well so that we can, we can try to do the best we can to come up with a system that's going to be equitable, fair, and respectful of everybody's situation. Is it likely then people will just see another fee on their water and sewer bill? We're still working through the, the mechanism of how it would be billed if we get to that point. Uh, right now, we're looking at more a matter of 
how it's going to be constructed, whether there's different tiers, how we would we would break groups up or properties up, what kinds of incentives there may be, what kinds of credits there may be. A lot of those things before we start looking at the nuts and bolts of how we're going to actually assess or how we're going to collect. Uh, one of the things we do want to do is we want to make sure that everything is transparent. So we want everybody to see how the money's collected. We want everybody to see how the money is spent so that there's no question about whether or not we're being managed or we're, we're being res responsible in managing the, the funds that are collected. So one of the things that we are doing now is we're going to be establishing a special fund, a special bucket that the money is going to be put into. Uh, the city already collects funds that are associated with stormwater protection. And largely those funds are being collected when people go in for building permits. We talked about construction a little bit ago. So those funds right now are being deposited into the general fund. And the general fund is used for a lot of different things. Well, what we're proposing to do and what we're hoping to do, we have to go through the city council and get their approval, but what we're hoping to do is set up a special fund for stormwater. So it's dedicated and nobody can rate it for something else. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, really it's, it, it's all about making sure that our future is going to continue to be a, a good future for everybody that lives here on Oahu, for people that want to continue to come to Hawaii and Oahu to visit. We want to make sure that we maintain this pristine environment that we were blessed with, and we want to provide for continued growth in population. So as population densities increase, as we develop more areas, we put in more roads, we put in more driveways, we build more homes or commercial buildings, we take away that ability to absorb water. But at the same time with more people, there's a demand for more water. And we want to make sure that that potable water aquifer, that water that everybody looks uh, very highly upon here, is protected for future use. And that all of those activities that don't require potable water we want to be able to make sure that that stormwater is there for that purpose because it's just a part of the cycle. That was Ross Sasamora, director of the city's facilities maintenance department. As far as the timetable, so the city will first need to set up that special fund with hopes to have a bill later this year establishing the new utility. Uh, currently, Sasamora says there are some 2,000 stormwater utilities operating in 39 states across the country. So the city will launch a series of community meetings next week to start talking about this. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're delving into the roots of a community church that started serving the Japanese immigrant community in the early 20th century. Reverend Taki Okimura was only 29 years old when he arrived in Honolulu in 1894. He settled into island life and was recognized as a prominent educator and activist. Early in his career, he helped organize Makiki Christian Church with 24 members. By 1927, congregation size and termite infestation caused that church to relocate. The new congregation settled across from McKinley High School on Pensacola Street. When it came to the design, Reverend Okamura was inspired by childhood memories of a national treasure. He suggested modeling the building design on Kochi Castle, located in Kochi Prefecture in Japan. Not everyone wanted their sanctuary to resemble a 17th century palace, but if you walk by Makiki Christian Church, you will see that the Reverend got his wish. For today's quiz, can you tell us the location of the original Makiki Christian Church? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from the Realtors and staff of Locations, proudly supporting HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. The Waikiki Health Center has opened its doors to a new homeless facility in Mo'ili'ili, just around the corner from the old stadium park. It's a three-story walk-up that used to be for transitional housing. The Waikiki Health Center is the new operator. We sat down with Executive Director Phyllis Dendel and Program Director Jason Aspero, who tell us that the facility will help offset the planned closure of the Next Step Emergency Homeless Shelter in Kaka'ako. At that facility, we house roughly 135 adults, singles and couples. And we're usually at roughly 95% occupancy every night. And that one is a giant warehouse and there are petitions for the for the clients. That's that's correct. So all our clients uh, they live in a cubicle. So it's three walls and roughly 32 square feet of living space. And uh, we have staff there. We call them housing navigators that will assist our clients with getting connected to services and with the ultimate goal of placement into permanent housing. And that has an arrangement with its clients where they pay something, right? Yes. So uh, we call it program fees. Uh, It ranges from $60 to $90 to $120 per month. However, if there is a client with zero income, then they don't pay anything. Instead, they'll help out with doing some chores around the facility. And, and nothing too out of the ordinary. It's basic, simple chores that you do at home, such as sweeping, mopping, wiping the tables, cleaning the bathroom. You know, we want to get people prepared uh, for housing, and, and that's one way how we can do that. I recall that they have facilities, laundry facilities there mm-hmm. as well. Yes, so uh, we have dryers and washers. It's pretty affordable, dollar to wash, 75 cents to dry, so a lot uh, cheaper than the outside. We also have showers, hot water, and we just renovated it maybe two years ago, so it's uh, top-notch. Is it it pet-friendly? Yes, we take uh, pets, uh, limited pets, uh, service animals, of course, as well. Okay, so the the snapshot on that property is that the landowner is now the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, and they have other plans for that property, so the days are limited for that shelter then? Yes, that's correct. That um, OHA's been a very gracious um, landlord and host for us, but you know, clearly they, they can do other things with that property that would be a higher and better use for their beneficiaries. They have not set a hard and fast date, but they've said that yes, in the next few years they'd like to look at doing something else with the property. So they've left it kind of loose, but by giving us that that little bit of notice gives us a chance to look for other opportunities, other spaces that might be available to accommodate homeless folks. Okay, and you already have a facility now. We do. We are just opening up a shelter in Mo'ili'ili. We're calling it Keaho. It will serve 75 adults and couples. The difference with that is that that facility is a dormitory. So individuals and couples will have a private space with a door and a a key to lock the door. So it will be a a private room the same way you would see at a college dormitory. Shared shower facilities, shared kitchen facilities, laundry facilities on site. It's a real step up while, while we are very fond of Next Step and we're very grateful that we've gotten the chance to, to manage Next Step and we, we recognize the real value of just giving folks some place to come in off the street, get into to a, a program that lets us help them find, find how, you know, get the housing that they need, you know, help them find employment, all of the things that come with, with getting them sort of back into the system. So we're very, we're very grateful for that opportunity at Next Step, but this is a step up. We think this is gonna be a real step up for, for our clients, though it's gonna be the same kind of rules. We are taking folks as they are off the street. We take walk-ins, we take referrals. Jason can speak to that. So really, it, instead of a giant warehouse, it's a three-story walk-up. It's right across from the ball fields there That's in right. Mo'ili'ili. So That's it's right. right there at the corner. And it was used as transitional housing before, right, Jason? Yes. Uh, another nonprofit operated the facility and uh, a couple months ago, 
we were given the opportunity to take over the lease and, and operate it as an emergency shelter. So hopefully it'll be a more attractive space since people have more privacy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And, and we're already getting a lot of calls. A lot of people are, are just walking in because they, they heard that uh, we're operating this uh, new facility and uh, a lot of people are interested in moving in. So we, uh, we selected uh, a handful of clients from Next Step and we hope to shelter around 25 to 30 people by the end of the week. By the end of the month, uh, have that place 100% occupied. Okay, now the Waikiki Health Center, I know you've got the facility in Waikiki. Uh, you also service teens, homeless homeless we have, youth. We have a number of programs. So we have two clinics. We have one on Ohua Street in Waikiki. We also have one on Makahiki Street, just uh, uh, like almost on the corner of Makahiki and King Street. That's also a primary care clinic. At that clinic, we offer also dental care and uh, optometry and behavioral health services. Besides that, we have a partnership with the Salvation Army at their Kaimuki location on 22nd Avenue. And there we run the PATH Clinic, where we serve pregnant women and new moms with substance abuse problems. And um, also uh, women who are incarcerated get their care, get their prenatal care through that program. We then also, as you alluded, we have a partnership with Holly Kipo, and we run the youth outreach program also in Waikiki. It's a drop-in center for teens and young adults up to age 22. We're open four days a week in the afternoons. They can drop in. We have meals, showers, place to wash clothes. We provide services. We we provide medical services four days a week, uh, including some behavioral health services there now. We just started that. And we also do our best to help those folks, to empower those folks through getting their GED, if, they're, if they still need to do that, to getting them in job training programs, to helping them find housing. There's some housing that we try to link them to for, for young folks. Yeah, there's a great need for there that is. area. There is. If I recall right, that particular program had a wish list. The youth that we serve are on the street. Um, they're homeless, so they they are in need of the kinds of things you'd expect. So so clothing for young folks is always needed. We're always in need of backpacks because that's that's something that uh, that's real handy for them. We take um, snacks if folks want to just bring some little something. We can arrange you know for that. Toiletries are always in need. Anything that you can sort of think of towels towels, that kind of thing, we could we could always use. I think in, in the past of doing stories with that uh, Next Step shelter, if I recall, like even the hotels were very generous with mm-hmm. bedding mm-hmm. and things like yeah. that. Yes, we're very grateful uh, that the hotels donate their bed sheets to us. In a given year at Next Step shelter, we serve around 500 people. So we need at least 500 bed sheets and more bed sheets aren't cheap if you have to buy it from the store so so we're lucky to have the hotels to help out and just donate their uh, beddings to us. Is there uh, any other wish list for the the folks at uh, Keoho, this new facility? Air mattresses, pillows, bedding of course, hygiene supplies, preferably uh, they like large size um, hygiene uh, like shampoos and uh, conditioner, soap, shampoo, uh, lotion, as well as um, canned goods canned goods, cup noodles, things that they can eat. Uh, we do have a kitchen, we do have microwaves, so it gives them the opportunity to, um, to also eat throughout the day rather than having to wait until dinner when we provide that one meal each day. While Waikiki Health started as a medical program and continues, that continues to be the core of our services is providing health care in the community to anyone who needs it. We're one of the safety net providers. You know, if you need care, insurance, Medicaid, whatever you have or don't have, we we are happy to provide services. But while that's a core of our, our service, we've always been very dedicated to providing services to the homeless. The few clients that we've had so far have have said that it's a it's it's very exciting to them to literally have a room of their own and to be able to lock the door. Mm-hmm, Lots mm-hmm. of them have been on the street for a while. So this is a big step for them towards the the life that they want and the mm-hmm. life we want for them to, you know, to be able to have a space of their own and um, have that 
have that kind of feeling of ownership of yeah, pride, a, of, mm-hmm. pride of, of mm-hmm. having your Dignity. own space. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I know uh, driving past that area, you often see tents that are tied up to the ball field fence, and hopefully mm-hmm. some of those yep. folks will be yep. enticed to uh, we, sign up. We, we hope. Uh, we, we reached out to them the other week. We told them who we are. Many of them have uh, good things to say already about Waikiki Health, either former patients or current patients. They're familiar with Next Step, either stayed there before or they just heard good stories about our facility. So they said they'll think about it. You know, many of those people have been on the streets for a, a very long time, so it's a lifestyle. But at least they didn't say no or I'm not interested. So we told them our doors are open. We do intakes Monday through Friday. Stop by any time between 8.30 and 4.30. If space is available, we can move you in. And if you're ready to move into housing, that's that's what we do there. We'll, we'll connect you to what you need to get situated and stable. We'll help you with your income. And our ultimate goal, if, if that's your ultimate goal, is, is to place you into permanent housing. Okay, Keoho, new beginning. Thank you so much for listening, Jason. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Waikiki Health Program Director Jason Espero and Executive Director Phyllis Dendel talking about Keho, a new shelter that opened last week in Mo'ili'ili. Coronavirus remains one step ahead of authorities in China. In Wuhan, at the heart of the outbreak, medical workers say they don't have enough testing kits. Next time on The World, a reality check from people in the affected areas and how they're coping with a public health threat with too many unknowns. Coronavirus plus the latest on the Trump impeachment on The World. This afternoon at 1. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Coming up on the next On Point, premature births. Many families might receive world-class neonatal care, but what supports do they have access to when they take their babies home? Sarah DiGregorio investigates why, for parents of preemies, discharge day marks the start of a whole new set of challenges. That's coming up on the next On Point from NPR. This afternoon at 2, following the world. Things in space shouldn't come as a surprise, but to astronomers used to poking around in the black hole, even they were puzzled by what they were seeing. The journal Nature recently published a study about the bizarre objects identified by UCLA Galactic Center scientists using the Keck Observatory atop Mauna Kea. We talked to Keck science lead Randy Campbell about the team's recent discovery of what they call G-objects. Well, they are bizarre, and we were a little surprised to find them because we were reanalyzing this wealth of data that we've collected over the last 13 years, studying the center of our Milky Way and the supermassive black hole. All the previous studies have focused on the stars near the black hole, but we subtracted out the stars and were looking at the gas, and then we were surprised to see these four of the more of these uh, G objects in the signature of the data. And they're very different than just a pure star, but they behave like a star in that they're not stretched out and wispy and, and they're not being gobbled up by the black hole. So they're bizarre and then we're not real sure exactly what they are, how they, how they got to be this way. It's a mystery and we have what we think is a plausible explanation, but we don't know for sure. And that is that they may have the product of a binary star, two stars that were close together, that were influenced by the black hole, and the black hole disturbed the binary and caused them to slam into each other. And then they got puffed up into this gassy 
dusty blob. And so there's a star inside, which is why the motion and the acceleration is like a star. It's massive, but the outside of it is um, gassy, dusty blob. So it, it's like a star encased in some kind of shell of gas? That's what we think, yeah, because there, because it must be massive. Otherwise, the, uh, when they get close to the black hole, the black hole would, would just suck them in. But they, but they survive their encounter with the black hole, and they keep orbiting it, just like the stars around the black hole do. We don't see these similar sorts of things elsewhere in, in our galaxy. And so there must be something about the black hole so they must be associated with the black hole, and that's one reason we think the black binary merger idea helps explain it, because the black hole promotes these binaries colliding with each other, and, and so that's one reason we, um, we think they're kind of bizarre, that, that, that you kind of need the black hole to help pr- produce them. I wish people could kind of see the illustration that you folks provided for this because, you know, you've got this thing kind of glowing in what looks like a little ball of glass. Yeah, that's an artist's impression. But what we think is that inside there really is kind of a star like but On the outside, a shell, an atmosphere of, of gas and dust is preventing the hot emission from the star from getting out. So we only see, we only see the gas and the dust that's on the outer shell and we don't see the inside of it. There are other possible explanations. Um, it could be newly formed stars that have a similar similar structure, but it's hard to, we don't think stars form in the vicinity of the black hole, so that's that's an explanation. And there are problems with the binary merger theory also, but uh, we're, we're excited to study these more and, and look at them in the future and maybe try and figure it out. When did you first see them? We have a program at Keck called the Visiting Scholar Program where we bring early career scientists in. So the lead author on this paper was Anna Chirlo, an early career scientist who spent some time at Keck. And she and I worked together to reanalyze these data using a 3D tool. And we, we didn't start off looking for them, but once we started looking at the data and we saw these things and the way they were moving, we were very surprised and very excited, and so we had to um, study them further and make a precise measurement of their motion and their acceleration in the vicinity of the black hole. And so we were able to observe this phenomenon directly. And so it was about um, it was about two years ago when we first started getting precise measurements and, and seeing these things directly. So it's taken that long to really get your arms around what this thing is? It took that long to to make the very precise measurements and to do the uh, scientific rigor that's needed for a publication in a peer-reviewed journal, especially one like Nature. And then the publication process itself takes quite a long time because you go through a referee who looks at the paper, you go through edits and many iterations. And so that in itself can take uh, many, many months. And so all those, all that work, all that very rigorous, detailed work and all the writing of the paper can take quite a while. Well, we're just coming off the big Super Bowl event, I guess, for astronomy. You must have been uh, dying to tell somebody about this, but you had to wait until uh, it got published. Yeah, nature requires that you don't do uh, press releases like this until the publication comes out. So we just missed uh, the Super Bowl, but maybe we'll um, maybe we'll make the playoffs next year. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so so what else is down the road? You know, once you've got to this point, are there any other experiments you can do, uh, or that are planned? Yeah, this this study was a very focused study on this small area near the near the black hole. We could expand the search into a wider field and see if there's more of these things by looking a little bit further out from the black hole. Uh, so that's one thing we plan to do. And then we, we can also go back to what we originally wanted to do, which was also study just the gas itself, which we um, which is also very interesting. And so there's there's uh, so many different things going on in this rich extreme environment with a supermassive black hole that as our instrumentation gets better, as our capability gets better, lots of new things to look at and see. And uh, there's, a, there's no end to, to the 
trying to understand uh, the physics and the, and the phenomenon that are going on near a supermassive black hole. And were you involved at all in some of the public events uh, that they uh, hosted? Uh, I know they had the viewing party over at Ala Moana Beach Park and uh, another event at Bishop Museum. Did you get a chance to get out to see those? Yes, I got to participate in many of the events at the uh, American Astronomical Society in Honolulu, um, including the ones you mentioned, and uh, the Bishop uh, Bishop Museum event was very very interesting, and and it was it was nice to to be a part of that, and I'm proud that Keck Observatory, working with these early career scientists, are able to to make new discoveries like this, and I think you know that. That these young scientists are our are, are future and keeping, um, you know, Hawaii and Mauna Kea as a premier research facility for astronomy in the world. You know, we at Keck, we do a lot of um, outreach events on the Big Island, and we have star parties and open houses and field trips and classroom visits and all kinds of outreach events. So, so sharing this excitement of astronomy with the public is something we've been doing for for decades now, and we continue to do that, and it's, it's, you know, part of our mission. That was Keck Observatory's Randy Campbell talking about the bizarre space objects known as the G-objects in our black hole. is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence with volcanic news of our sister planet Venus. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our ridiculously small planet and also the things we can try and look for in our dark skies. As usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal, and he's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers, Venus will be easily visible in the evening sky after sunset, and it will set in the west at around 9 p.m. The moon this week will be approaching its full phase, so stargazing for those faint celestial wonders will be quite challenging. Well, we have news on one of those celestial wonders that we don't always hear about either, and I think it has something to do with Hawaii, and we're talking about Venus, yeah? Yes, we are. There's so much going on in the universe these days that it's easy to forget that some of the most interesting things that are happening are happening right under our nose here in the solar system. Most recently, on our sister planet Venus. A recent study co-authored by a planetary scientist at the University of Hawaii has provided tantalizing evidence that the volcanoes of Venus that were long thought to be extinct are in fact very much active and continuing to shape the surface of the planet. And I'm sure you can explain how they were able to do this with Venus largely covered in clouds, right? Well, as you said, Venus is covered in cloud. And one way to peer through this cloud is by using radar. Now, back in the 90s, NASA's Magellan probe used radar to map Venus. Most recently, the Europeans did it with Venus Express, but in higher detail. And you're saying by comparing the data, they were able to see something had changed, huh? Exactly. And it looks like fresh lava flows have been detected in the most recent data. And this is interesting because Venus and Hawaii share some things in common relating to the volcanic activity, right? They absolutely do. Venus is covered in lava fields and volcanoes, some of which are massive shield volcanoes similar to Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa here on the Big Island. One can also assume that the lava fields on Venus probably consist of A'a and Pohoihoi, just like they do here in Hawaii. Fascinating stuff with Christopher Phillips, another Stargazer report. Thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Earlier in the show, we told you about the history of a community church that you can't miss seeing here on Oahu. Makiki Christian Church is located across from McKinley High School along Pensacola Street. The top of the tallest tower can be seen as you drive down Pi'ikoi, and what makes this eye-catching structure special is that it's modeled on Kochi Castle, an Edo period structure that is one of 12 original castles still standing in Japan. Church founder Reverend Take Okimura grew up in Kochi Prefecture and had many fond memories of playing on palace grounds. He chose the design to symbolize peace and protection. Church historians attribute congregational growth and termite infestation as main factors for MCC's relocation to the current site. When Reverend Okumura started the church in 1904, there were just 24 members. By the time he retired in 1937, the church was 799 members strong. And to answer today's question, the original Mikiki Christian Church stood at Kinao and Pensacola Streets, built on land donated by local businessman George Castle. No winners today. Try again. Uh, the next time. That is today's quiz. If you have one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Canada ranks just behind Japan as the second largest demographic of tourists in Hawaii. Our northern neighbors accounted for over a billion dollars of spending in 2018 and have been exploring a more lasting economic connection between Canada and Hawaii. More recently, the joint acquisition of over 40,000 acres of land by Pomona Farming LLC and the Canadian Public Sector Pension Investment Board under the name Mahipono sparked controversy among many over land and water rights for farmers in East Maui. Rana Sarkar is the Canadian Council General for Hawaii and Northern California. He talked with the Conversations Harrison Patino about Canada's effort to break into the Hawaiian economy and what the country can learn from the aloha spirit. There are, of course, so many Canadian tourists. We almost have close to a million Canadian visitors each year that come through here. And so you can imagine that uh, in the midst of that, there are a lot of lost passports, a lot of living and dying and breathing that are going on. And so uh, supporting that presence is part of our activity. And we have a terrific partnership with the Australians who do a lot of that work on uh, with us as well. And so for that, really grateful. But the way it sort of works for our diplomatic corps is that the responsibility for Hawaii sort of falls with the state of California and Northern California. So it's my great pleasure to, to do that job. So you're the Council General of of Hawaii and Northern California. How did those two come to be linked? I, I'm not exactly sure how they became linked. I mean, some of these things can be quite arbitrary, but there's there's probably some great sense in it in the sense that the level of connectivity between California and Hawaii is the sort of natural entry point into the mainland, I'm sure, for many. And in terms of the community as a Pacific community, I think that that Pacific sensibility also sort of the probably historically going back and probably the, the military connection was also a significant uh, component of that. In terms of diplomatic oversight from your perspective, how does Hawaii vary from the Northern California region and maybe what are the similarities? I think that, you know, we're out here, we'll have uh, a significant amount of consular work that, as I said, that, uh, you know, we, we work with the Australians and they do a lot of our work on that part. And so I think that just given the level of tourism and the level of, uh, of, of back and forth there, but also I think the similarity is that, you know, in Hawaii's Senate representation, it's uh, congressional representation that we'll probably see even more in, uh, in Washington. And we're obviously sort of alert to Hawaii-based issues and where particularly sort of the interaction with Canada sort of comes in. And I think that more generally it's that kind of Pacific-facing psychology that we tend to see certainly in my part of California, Northern California, and as we're looking to engage with Asia and with some of our partners around the Pacific, I think that Hawaii is the central node in some of those conversations. I'm glad you say that because in terms of the entire Asia-Pacific region, Hawaii is sort of smack dab in the middle of that. So I, it's You Canada. couldn't get any more smack dab in the middle than You're about Hawaii as geologically is, yeah. centric as you can possibly be. 
In, in your perspective, does Canada have a keen awareness of that and, and a willingness to want to move forward in the global economy with a presence here in Hawaii? I think so. I think that the viewpoint as we go from a kind of uh, Atlanticist world to a kind of Pacific-centered world, and we're kind of building this kind of muscle memory, and it's in some ways it's a rediscovery of an old muscle memory. I, I think you're probably aware that Native Hawaiians have been in British Columbia since the 1790s, and many of them worked on commercial vessels, and they ended up there. And there was a community in British Columbia in the early part of the 19th century that's it was close to a thousand people and many people in British Columbia can trace their ancestry back to some of those communities of Hawaiians and so there's always been an interplay particularly sort of a commercial interplay that goes back centuries before that British Columbia was even incorporated into Canada and so I think that that old reflex muscle memory and the rediscovery of a lot of the the oceanic paths the uh, now air travel on top of that and the way in which that commerce and sort of people flow works. Hawaii is a central node in that, not just because it's where a lot of people stop off and they recreate, they spend time here, but also because of going back into that security mindset, there's a real sense that Hawaii is a, an important part of the equation. Is Canadian financial presence in Hawaii primarily tourism-based, or is there a growing economic presence in other sectors as well? Tourism has been a, a significant part of it. If you look at the 400 million in trade and export that comes through these regions into Canada, I think that services, and particularly sort of trade and services around tourism, has been a significant component of it. We're buyers of Hawaiian agriculture or products, and I think that then we tend to sell everything from marine equipment to fuels to agricultural products on ourselves uh, into the Hawaiian market. So one of Canada's most significant economic enterprises in Hawaii has also been the source of a lot of controversy. Uh, the joint acquisition of land in East Maui by Pomona Farming LLC and the Canadian Public Sector Pension Investment Board kind of has snowballed into a larger debate on land rights, water rights within the farming community. What's your take on how that was received and how that might affect the future of Canadian economic relationships in Hawaii? I think when, I think it might have been December 8, 2018 when the PSB and uh, their partners made that original uh, investment, I think it's 41,000 acres, which is significant. And I think that the principle of it, and of course PSP is not a government entity, its own investment strategy is independent of government. So we don't have direct access into that or insight into, into what they're up to. But uh, my sense is, though, is that from what I've seen and read and, and spoken to folks is that the intention was to make it a very green and, you know, just equal logically focused investment. And I think that, you know, where we've seen our pension funds uh, as investors around the world, one of the things, the mindsets that they, they tend to bring to investments is, you know, what are the inclusive VSG rights that, that go along with those investments? And so their inclusiveness and, uh, and ensuring that they're listening to local communities, I'm sure, are at the sort of focal point of many of those investment strategies. So with that land deal, there's been this idea that enterprises that people might have thought were conflict-free sort of have hidden costs in terms of not taking into account indigenous perspectives or the perspectives of farmers or underrepresented demographics. As somebody who kind of oversees this um, growing economic presence here, are those considerations something you feel that you have to navigate? Oh, certainly. I, I think that, you know, if we back up a sec, I think that writ large, we are in a world where getting uh, a more inclusive license to do projects in general has become a factor in doing business in anywhere right now. And, uh, and I think that's all for the good. And I think that processes that you can put in place that are inclusive, that are peaceful, that are respectful of, of communities, I think add to the kind of longevity of projects. They add to the fact that local communities can engage and, and benefit from those projects. And, you know, where that might not have been the case 40 or 50 years ago, I think that you're seeing that in projects all around the world. And so I think that rather than being an outlier, I think that having these conversations in any significant project that involves local communities, I think is a, is a positive development. What are some of your biggest takeaways in overseeing the consular region here? The Aloha spirit, I think, has a dramatic and potentially deep and meaningful impact on the world over and, and could over the next few generations. Because I think that many of the principles that you know folks in Hawaii have been living and breathing for centuries now, um, in terms of inclusiveness, in terms of just an openness and a way of approaching each other and managing challenges. I think that's a, that's a spirit that we're looking more to now. And, you know, certainly Canadians, we share that spirit as well. 
And we're looking to, you know, as the global situation becomes more complex and as, you know, liberal international comes under challenge from many different forces in the world, I think that finding old mechanisms that go back to, you know, how we problem solve as humans and communities that are particularly sort of adept at that, I think that that is the, one of the hidden superpowers of the 21st century. And so I think that you know, if I were to say, you know, what were the, did I come come away with and say, look, I mean, is there one thing that you know that we see and hear and sort of feel when we're in Hawaii is that that spirit? I am also amazed by the fact that we are in the absolute smack dab center of the Pacific, and as geopolitics becomes more complex, you know, Hawaii will play a bigger role naturally just because of its geography in that context. And I'm amazed by, you know, the people and the creativity that we're seeing out here as well. And I think that, you know, as Hawaii grows and starts to branch out in the mainland and various parts of the world, I think that, uh, you know, it will be a very exciting moment and there's a lot to add. Now, with that in mind, how do you envision the near future of Canadian diplomatic and economic presence here? Are there any really discernible goals that you want to achieve during your time? Sure. I, I, you know, I, you know, you mentioned green projects and ecologically sensitive projects. I think that, you know, one of the, the hopes, I think, is that to see sort of more investment and uh, more cooperation, particularly around clean energy, green energy, looking at energy storage, looking at different types of projects, but also in agriculture. And I think that there's enormous scope for cooperation in ag between the two countries, given sort of some of the leadership that we have, and in particularly in sort of new ag or bio ag, and also some of the practices out here and some of the universities here. And so I think that there's a number of very discrete areas where we can work together and, uh, and co-discover, as it were. That was Rana Sarkar, the Canadian Council General for Hawaii in Northern California. He was talking with uh, The Conversations, Harrison Patino. And we've run out of time. You know, if you missed any of the show and want to re-listen to it or want to find a past one, go to our conversation page. Just look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. We're not sure if we could be preempted by the impeachment trial again. Stay tuned. Stay safe. I'm Catherine Cruz. And keep tuning in for the conversation. Mm-hmm.